Hey, Hills Church, how you doing? Doing good, awesome. Well, welcome to everybody who's live at our campuses, those who are joining online or later on podcast. And uh, man, I'll add my word of excitement for this new series that Rick is gonna bring. I'm always grateful when he trusts me to preach during the month of July and, uh, and when he uh, has a well-earned study break and goes around and visits church plants. But here's what I also know happens he starts getting the itch again to preach at his home church. He starts getting excited. He starts getting pumped. Who knows? We might have an hour-long message next week, but it's going to be fire. It's going to be so good. No, seriously, Rick uh, usually is watching online. So, hey, uh, can we live at our campuses? Can we give some love to our senior teaching minister? We love you, Rick. We're excited for you to be back next week. Can't wait to hear what God's going to do. Well, it was recently that uh, I, was, uh, I was doing my bedtime routine with my six-year-old son. And um, it happened to be a day when my wife was not feeling well. And so uh, as we were going to do our nighttime prayers, uh, I said, hey, buddy, um, you think maybe we, sh- we, sh- we should ask God together for, uh, for God to-, to heal mom and help her feel better today? And it was the end of a long day. So my son immediately like cocked his head to the side and gave me a look that was like, really, dad, another teachable moment? And then he stuck his finger out as if to say, you pray. We didn't even say anything. And I took a deep breath and I said, okay, how about this, bud? I'll start the prayer and we'll do it together and then you finish. And so I bowed my head before he could say no. And I said, dear God, and I waited to see if he would join. And he did join in, just not in the way that I expected. I said, dear God, And my six-year-old said, blah, 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 amen already. (laughs) Oh, man. Probably the most honest prayer from a six-year-old ever. Just at the end of a long day. Now, this is a place of grace. And so if you're a parent and you're one of those where you're like, oh, man, I know that kind of moment, uh, then I hope that you feel welcome here, whether you've called yourself a member of the Hills for a long time or whether you're brand new. But for the rest of us, As we have been in this series, How Jesus Prayed, the intent, the desire behind this series is that as followers of Jesus, we would let him inform and shape the blah, blah, blah sections of our prayers, of what we're actually praying and how we're praying. And so over the last few weeks, we have looked at uh, at how frequently Jesus prayed. And the answer, by the way, is frequently. Uh, We have looked at how persistently Jesus asks his followers to pray and not give up. We have looked at some of the incredible promises that Jesus makes about the power of prayer. And we've wrestled with our own experiences of when prayer doesn't seem to be answered or work in the timing or way that we expect. And today, as we finish this series, I I just want us to, to simply walk through some of the Gospels and look at some of the prayers that Jesus himself prayed. And so we're going to start with, with a, a simple prayer. Jesus prays a couple different times. That prayer is, thank you, Father. Now, we see this a few different times in the Gospels. Uh, there's there's some, some times where it's not recorded that, that Jesus said these words, but it says that he gave thanks And that's often around a meal. It's also when he performs uh, miracles with the loaves and fish to feed the multitudes, and he gives thanks. But I want to show you the places where he said these 
words. And it's in two different places. The first is in John chapter 11. And it's at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. So for anybody that, that could benefit from some context here. So um, his, his friend got sick. Jesus was kind of far away. He had kind of heard word, but didn't make it to Lazarus's bedside in time to heal him. So Lazarus dies. So when Jesus shows up, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, understandably, they are hurting. They're confused. They're disappointed. Why, Jesus? Why didn't you come? And Jesus comes to Lazarus's tomb. He, he weeps and mourns at the sight. And then he asks them to roll the stone away. Now, after initially saying, man, it's going to stink. He's been, in, you know, he's been dead for a few days. They roll the stone away. And then, in John 11, then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. So Jesus prays, mindful that there are others around so that they understand. Number one, that there is a God who hears our prayers and who has already heard what Jesus is praying. And by the way, that is an underlying premise around the concept of prayer, that there is this, this miraculous reality that the God of the universe listens to us, wants to hear what we have to say to him, asks us to come to him in prayer. But after saying all of this, Jesus is praying mindful of something that's about to happen. Because right after that, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And his friend is raised back to life, a resurrection miracle. So that's, that's thank you prayer number one. Here's thank you prayer number two. It is in the midst of Jesus being second guessed by somebody who was supposed to know Jesus best. And that's a guy named John the Baptist. At the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, before he's even really starting to be a traveling rabbi, John the Baptist was this prophet from God who said that there was a, a, a chosen one who was coming to prepare the way of the Lord, and John said it was Jesus. But then John ends up in prison. And this isn't all working out the way that John thought it would. So John asks some of his followers to go to Jesus on his behalf and ask this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? John is effectively asking, hey man, did I get it wrong about you? And a few verses later, Jesus, not only being second-guessed by John the Baptist, but he starts talking about some towns that outright ignored and rejected the miracles he worked among them. And so it's in this context of second-guessing and being ignored that Jesus, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Okay, I want to show you these two contexts because to me, they are, they are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Jesus prays in the midst of being second-guessed and rejected, and he prays after, in anticipation of his greatest miracle. 
like in, in a setting that would be relationally like painful and in a setting that's filled with hope and new life, Jesus gives thanks. How does he do this? In the good and in the bad, Jesus is able to do this because he's not giving thanks based on how things are. He's giving thanks based on who God is. His gratitude is rooted in the nature and the person of God the Father, not in circumstances on earth. That means whether in the midst of rejection or resurrection, whether it's deliverance or doubt, whether it's faith or frustration, Jesus gives thanks. And so if we're going to pray how Jesus prayed, that means that whether it's a good week, good week or a bad week, that means whether it's a hard season or a season where things just seem to be clicking, whether, whether it's a time when we're full of faith, full of hope, or a time when we are full of despair, full of sadness, there is a person where we can find a source of gratitude, and that's God. There's a person where we can look and say, God, I can still be grateful. I can still say thank you because of you. And that's how Jesus prayed. And then Jesus, I want to look at the next prayer. He prays, glorify your name. Now, Jesus taught a prayer that, that kind of sounds like this when he taught us the Lord's prayer at the very beginning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But I want to show you the context where Jesus prays, glorify your name. Because it's not when he's teaching people to pray. It's in John chapter 12. And in this context, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the cross. Jesus knew that he was going to die. And by the way, if you knew you were going to die, you would talk about it too. So Jesus is talking about it to his disciples. He's trying, he's trying to help them. Because Jesus isn't talking because he's worried Jesus is explaining to his disciples why this is important. And so before we look at the prayer, I want, I want you to just hear a few things that Jesus said. Jesus, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come, it's time for the Son of Man, Jesus, to be glorified, to go to the cross. Now, he says that, and then he explains, he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus gives this simple agrarian metaphor to help us understand a spiritual reality. He has a mission to bring the kingdom of God and to save people from their sins. And like the seed that dies, when Jesus dies, he's going to produce a harvest of saved souls who've been saved by his blood through his grace, covered with his righteousness, but it will only be by dying, being buried, and risen back to life. Only then will this new harvest happen. And so, in light of that, this is what Jesus prays. Here it is. Now, my soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Read these words with me at our campus. Father, glorify your name. Now Jesus speaks here as one who understands what needs to happen. 
He came to do a lot of things in his earthly ministry, but he says that dying in selfless love for the sins of the world is, quote, the very reason I came. So when he prays, Father, glorify your name, he's embracing the path God has for him, which will take him to the cross. And check this out. This is the only prayer Jesus prays out loud that God the Father answers out loud. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name, and look at what happens. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Okay, God the Father just audibly responded to this prayer from Jesus. Now, I love what what one commentator points out. He says, this is a moment between the Father and the Son where glory is in every part of history because it's in every tense. Jesus prays in the present tense, Father, glorify your name. God responds in the past, I have glorified it in the future and I will again. I love how the the, the commentator summarizes and says, anticipation of glory becomes participation in glory. Oh man, to anticipate and say, God, I don't know, I don't always know how you're going to do it, but in the way that only you can, will you glorify your name through this act of selfless love? Because by the way, this, this glory is pretty upside down. This, this glory that, that Jesus prays for is about heading to a cross. And yet he, he prays embracing what God has for him, a place of humiliation that becomes a place of worship, a place of shame that becomes a place of reverence, a place of despair that has become our place of hope, a place, a place of rejection that has won our acceptance, a place of defeat that became the victory of God. That's how glory works in the kingdom. It doesn't always look the way that we think it should look. It's actually in the low road, in self-denial, in self-giving, in sacrifice, that glory takes place. Now, why does that matter for you and me? Because admittedly, this seems like a pretty unique moment. Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, just prayed out loud. God the Father just responded to him. Like, that's pretty cool. Okay, I, I get that there's something divine and special in that, but what does that mean for me? Here's why this prayer matters for you and me. So Jesus already knows, he already knows what God has for him that will involve him denying himself and living in a sacrificial way. And so Jesus, I love how Eugene Peterson puts this, he quote, refuses to avoid God by using prayer. And so prayer becomes a place where he embraces what God has for him by praying, Father, glorify your name. Here's what this means for you and me. To walk in the way of Jesus is to embrace also picking up our own cross. It's to embrace denying ourselves. It's to embrace putting others in front of ourselves. It's to embrace, well, here, you're going to have an opportunity sometime this week. I don't know when it is. It may actually be on the way home. But somebody at some point is going to treat you in a way that you don't deserve. 
They may say something, they may do something, they, 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 they may, they may kind of like just, you know, all of a sudden come across with some kind of attitude towards you. They may say blah, 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 amen already. Who knows what it'll be? But when that happens, to pray, Father, glorify your name is to, is to walk the way of Jesus, which is when someone strikes you, you turn the other cheek. To, to pray, Father, glorify your name is when there's a time where you could end up first in line, whether that's literal or metaphorical, you take the back of the line. To pray, Father, glorify your, your name doesn't mean that you start striving and grabbing for some place of prominence, but actually where you embrace serving and loving in unseen or maybe thankless ways. To pray, Father, glorify your name means embracing the cruciform, the cross-shaped life, because in that place, God will work glory. And Jesus kept praying this kind of prayer. A few chapters later in John 17, he changes it slightly. It says, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, Jesus prays, God, would you use your son to bring glory? And it's, it tells us something about Jesus. Man, if you're new, listen close. If you're new to Christianity, what Jesus just prays is that God has given Jesus, who is God in the flesh, all authority so that he can bring eternal life. And what is eternal life? Oh man, I want you to lean in because this is the reason for your existence. This is the only place of fulfillment. This is where you will find what Jesus calls life to the full, eternal life. It is to know God and to know Jesus as the one he sent. That's what you were made for. You were made for relationship with God, you were made to know him and to know Jesus and to find real life with him. This is what Jesus prays because he knows this is what the Father's doing. And he knows that all the way to the moment he dies. We've looked at a few prayers leading up to and even on the cross in this series. I wanna show you one more. In Luke 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Once again, Jesus knows this is about what the Father is doing. And so, Dad, it's in your hands. Dad, do what only you can. Bring glory out of this shame. And here... Jesus continues to do what he's done all through his teaching, which is talk about the fact that the Father sent him so that people would find life. And the whole time, from his first teaching to his dying breath, Jesus remains connected and one with his Father. And he does that partly because he is God in the flesh. But Jesus amazingly prays that we would have that same connection with God. 
Back to John 17. I want to show you this, this other prayer, this last prayer we'll look at. May they be one. This is a prayer that Jesus prays in John 17, which is, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter later this week. It's the longest recorded prayer we have from Jesus. And I just want to show you one part of this prayer that, that's repeated multiple times. First, Jesus starts, uh, for what we'll look at, praying for his disciples at the time. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be, at our campuses, read these words, one as we are one. Jesus prays for his disciples, for their protection, but also for their unity. But Jesus doesn't just pray for them at that moment. Jesus prays for us. Do you know Jesus prayed for you while he was on earth? Like, yes, he's interceding at the right hand of the Father. That's what Hebrews tells us right now. But did you know Jesus prayed for you? And if you knew that, do you remember what he prayed for you? Listen to these words. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be, what's that word? One father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Jesus just prayed for us. He prayed for you. And he prays that you would experience a oneness and a unity with other believers in the same way that Jesus and the Father experience oneness. How is that even possible? Well, it's because of that last sentence. May they also be in us. See, Jesus understands humans have a, an incredible ability to divide. We have an incredible ability to pair off into tribes and groups and to play us versus them. Oh, we may live in a polarized day and age, but I promise all throughout history, there have been people who have peeled off into different groups and, and factions against one another. That is not new. And so Jesus knows the only means of true unity and oneness must be because we are in Christ first. Here's what that means. I love this. It means that when you, follower of Jesus, when you claimed Christ as Lord and were baptized, you did not just get a Savior who won forgiveness and life for you. You did not just get the presence of the Holy Spirit. You did not just get a Father in heaven who adopted you. You also got brothers and sisters. Amen. Oh, we are adopted and saved not as individuals, but into a family. And that's a family, oh man, listen close, somebody needs to hear this. That's a family who's not always going to think like you. You got some spiritual siblings who aren't always going to read scripture like you do. You got spiritual siblings who aren't always going to vote like you. Come on, somebody. You got, you got siblings who aren't always going to see the world the same way that you do, or speak the same way, language you do, or come from the same cultural background you do, or be in the same tax bracket that you are. You've got spiritual family all over the place, and the only way that we are one is through Jesus Christ and his spirit present in us. 
This is not unity as the world defines unity. This is unity as Jesus prayed for it. A supernatural unity that happens because Jesus causes us to be one with him so that now I am one with you. You are one with me. And he prayed for this, not once, but multiple times. He prays, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to, what are those words? Complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When Jesus prays this, he prays for a unity that is supernatural, but he prays for a unity that is also visible to the world. Did you see that? A couple times he says that the world may believe. What this tells me is that, that Jesus, as he prays, complete unity results in a compelling witness. Because we live in divided times. We live among factions. We live separated in many different ways. And when the world sees a group who seem to have a bunch of stuff that are different, seem to have a bunch of different, different opinions or perspectives or, 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 or ways that they see the world, a bunch of different things that could separate them. They, sure, they certainly seem like people who might be in different echo chambers in social media's algorithm. They, they seem like people who, why are y'all hanging out? And the only reason is because of Jesus. What's holding this group together that's spread out all over the world, that's coming from all these different backgrounds and practicing and worshiping in many different ways? Oh, what's holding us together is the spirit of God, the spirit of unity and peace. What's holding us together is that by Christ, we have been made on earth as his body, one. And when the world sees that and asks about that, we have the opportunity to witness that it's Jesus. It's him. It's always been him. And it also means that it has to be something they can see. That being one, Jesus seems to imply that that's going to be in part because of how we love one another. He says that earlier in the Gospel of John. It's going to be how we serve with one another, how we care for one another, how we extend ourselves for one another, how we're generous to one another, how we go on mission together, how we, how we serve and bless others in our community together, how we pray together. And so here's how I want to finish. I told you we were going to set a little time for prayer. And um, I heard somebody talk about the difference between first order disciplines and second order disciplines. Second order disciplines is talking about the stuff. First order discipline is doing the stuff. So uh, uh, it's last service of the day. I'm hungry, so I'm going to use barbecue as an example. So second order discipline is reading the book from the barbecue chef and watching the show for the, the tutorial about how to do it or, or talking to a buddy about the ingredients that they use in their dry rub. But the first order discipline, oh man, that's finally tasting the stuff. Well, this series in, in many ways has been a second order discipline. 
You know, we, we have we've talked about our experiences in prayer. We've looked at Jesus' example in prayer. We've discussed some theology around prayer. But the first order discipline that I most want for us to pray. To pray when you're alone, to pray when you're with others, to pray throughout your day, to pray even in silence as you listen for God's voice. And so here's how we're going to finish. I'm going to stop talking and we're going to start praying. And after hearing Jesus's prayer about us being one, we're not just going to bow our heads and pray individually. I'm going to invite you and ask you to stretch outside your comfort zone maybe a little bit to huddle up with some people around you. Could be three or four folks, could be more than that. But just wherever you are, I wanna ask you at our campuses, uh, I'm gonna release you in just a moment, just to, to, um, to group up and pray for the next few minutes. And you're gonna see on the screen, you can look at this, we're just gonna, we're gonna let Jesus' prayers, a simplified version of them that we looked at today, just be our, kind of our prompt. This is our launching point. And so we can pray some of these words or let them send us into an extended time of prayer. So right now at our campuses, I want to release you uh, to get to the first order discipline. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you that you are listening to every prayer that's being lifted up right now. As only you can, God, you hear, you hear the prayers of your people, even when they're happening all at once. Thank you. God, we, uh, we ask that you would make us one, that we would experience unity through your spirit in such a way that would give us a powerful witness in the world. We pray this for all followers of Jesus, for brothers and sisters who are around this city who don't go to the hills, but they lift up the name of Jesus. Make us one. For our friends and brothers and sisters who are in church plants around the country, make us one. For disciple-making movements around the world, make us one. For Bible translation teams among the unreached, make us one. For all of your children, everywhere, Lord, make us one. And make us a people who continue to unite in prayer. And God, I pray for those who have never put their faith in Jesus, that they would realize there is an invitation from you, even today, for eternal life so that they could know you and know Jesus and find life in his name. May they experience oneness with you and oneness with your people. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.